Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Ossoffy with your host, Paul Frederick. Well, so, what is the left-hand path? Something uh talk about a lot. It's in the intro to this show. It's a thing. What is it? What do I mean by that? Does everyone think of the same thing when they say the words left-hand path? A couple of weeks ago, I was in... Portland for this Black Flame PDX festival that I was uh, speaking. I was hosting it, so I'd give a little talk every morning, uh, Saturday morning, and then uh, the Friday evening. And uh, went in Saturday morning. Well, before we went in Saturday morning, I went out to breakfast with uh, my my roommates while I was there. Uh, we were staying in an Airbnb, and it was uh, Toby Chapel and uh, Jack Grail who wrote a really cool book about Hecate and gave a killer presentation about Hecate there. We all went out to breakfast one morning. We went to this place in the Pearl District called uh, Fuller's Coffee Shop. And it was so cool. I don't see this. If you do uh, a list of like awesome breakfast places in Portland, this place doesn't show up on there. And that's just a crime it's a travesty you know if you look in um oh what's it called yelp you look up breakfasts for yelp in portland and you get pages and pages of all these trendy places that have you know kale they want to serve you kale for breakfast i'm like what is that you know and yeah i'm gonna say it right here This is probably going to piss a lot of people off and I'll probably get in a lot of trouble for this. But I'm going to say it. Kale sucks. It just sucks. It's like... It's it's like lawnmower trimmings to me. I just... I don't get it. Anyhow, go to this Fuller's Coffee Shop. It is like an old school diner, like bar style. Everyone sits at the bar. And, you know, just you just go up and sit at the bar, sit by total strangers, um, and they just fry up eggs. That's some of the best thick-cut bacon I think I've ever had. Coffee. You get coffee, and she just keeps it coming. You know, good old-fashioned good old fashioned Colombian coffee brewed, you know. You're not going to get, you know, your lattes or, or frappuccinos here. So, anyhow, we got a, like, little corner space Toby Chapel, Jack Grail, and myself. And we were talking about the left-hand path. And I was thinking about what am I going to talk about when I go in this morning. I needed to give a 15-minute like opener. And um, we were talking about the left-hand path and the nature of the left-hand path. And, and started thinking, well, maybe a lot of people don't really know about that. Maybe, or maybe people have different ideas about it. I mean, the word is out there, but... There's different ideas about it. 
And I think a lot of people, when they talk about left-hand path, they use this term. They, what they really mean is, is, is just sort of a dark aesthetic, like a dark aesthetic path to you know, occultism or alternative spirituality or what have you. And there's not a lot of uh, strong philosophical ideas behind it. So I figured it was a good time to clarify it. Um, and, I, and I talked about it a little bit there, but I could talk about it uh, a little bit more in depth here. Um, about what the left-hand path is in my world, how I define this term, how I see it, and how I apply it within my life. So this term left-hand path, and just a deep, just a, a quick historical view of where this term comes from, I think its first appearance is in Hinduism, specifically with a group of, of Hindus called the Agora. And there's a book out there somewhere called Agora at the Left-Hand Path of God. And what this group did is they practiced, I think, what you would call extreme asceticism. Um, there were ascetics. Ascetics? Aesthetics? Not sure how you pronounce that. Gurdjieff would call them fakir. So Gurdjieff talked about four ways. He talked about the way of the monk, the yogi, and the fakir. And then he talked about a fourth way. And in Gurdjieff's world, a fourth way probably corresponds closest to what I would consider left-hand path. But that's probably a discussion for another time. The way of the fakir is a way of physical work. Well, it's work on physical center. The way of the monk is a way of work on emotional center, focuses on emotional center. And so we have lots of examples of this. Uh, most monotheism is right here. You know, you have, you know, mass, mass church Christianity focusing on, on the emotions and the heart, the, the image of of Jesus weeping or Jesus, you know, in pain on the cross um, or in, in, you know, radical Islam is emotionally based with um, mostly with anger, very emotional um, sorts of systems. And then there's the way of the yogi, which is the way of uh, work directly with the intellect and the way of the work with intellect um, is exam examples of this are like, um, like uh, Eastern uh, meditational Buddhist priesthoods and stuff like that are considered more um, uh, intellectual. And there's actually uh, a, a different kinds of yoga that get talked about in relation to this. It's like there's uh, a yoga for ob observing the laws of the universe. There's a yoga for uh, the physical, uh, you know, doing physical things. But it, largely it's like a philosophical, it's all philosophical intellectual center type work. So getting back to the way of the fakir, so this group, the Agora, were basically fakirs, and fakirs are like, they're, they're the people you see in India who are like laying on a bed of nails, or they put a spike through their hand, or they stand in one weird position for like hours and hours. Um, have you ever seen the Jackass movies? Or one of the Jackass movies, they go to India and they have a guy on there who's master of the dick stick, who whose dick is super long, but he wraps his penis around this stick and then people stand on either end and he holds it up. 
And you, you see this and you're like, what the fuck? Who are these guys? No, there's been people like that wandering around in India for like thousands of years doing some weird thing like that. And um, those would be fakirs. And, and Gurdjieff said that like what these fakirs do is they'll, they'll focus on one specific thing. Like, you know, wrapping your dick around a stick or laying on a bed of nails, or putting a spike through your hand. They'll focus on that one thing, standing still for like, you know, 12 hours at a time. They'll focus the, all of their work on that one like physical ac activity for like decades and decades and decades. And they sit out in the street and do it and ask for alms for it in return. So the Agora was basically a sect of fakirs like this who, who focused on real radical, doing real radical physical things like eating shit or bathing in shit or drinking urine and, you know, um, lots of really painful things and, and, and wicked things. And they are considered by other fakirs and others, other uh, Eastern practitioners as being a, uh, w wicked and evil and for following the left-hand path. So I think historically this is where the term left-hand path originates. The next place it origin or the next place you see it, I think historically, is in uh, Blavatsky, uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, in one of her books on Theosophy, and she's she's the Theosophical lady, talks about uh, left hand path brothers, like that's another way, it's a way of like evil and wickedness, and hers is the way of of goodness, and so you see it appearing there and then we get into the modern era I'm not sure where it first comes up I don't think that Anton LaVey used that term left-hand path but I think people in 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 COS use that term now um, I heard it a lot when um, I was becoming more involved in TOS and the Early 90s, I think, is when I first came, became acquainted with the term. And it's just out there. It's just a general left-hand path term. But I think the first person then to formally elucidate on this term and define it and write something solid and scholarly and informed would be Stephen Flowers and his book, Lords of the Left-Hand Path. And... My perspective of the left-hand path, for the most part, comes from this and is in alignment with how he defines it there. Now, he talks about a lot of different left-hand path movements in there. If you want, I, He talks about the Agora in, in much more detail than I just went through. Um, he talks about um, different left-hand path movements throughout history. He talks about, um, you know, medieval... Satanism, he talks about the Cathars in the Middle Ages, he talks about the Knights Templar, and um, he talks about, um, of course, Church of Satan and, and Temple of Set in modern variants. But the thing that I want to focus on here is not all these different examples on it, but in the terminology of how he specifically defines the left-hand path in that book. Now he talks about he he starts at the at the at the broadest level 
he says that the left-hand path can be considered self-deification and antinomianism. Self-deification is basically the idea that you can become a god in its simplest form. And what that really means is, uh, you know, somebody who's critical of this is going to immediately equate it with having a god complex or being a control freak or something. But what it really means, and you take it down to a deeper level, is the idea that the essence of the divine, the spark of divinity, is within you as an individual. And that by exercising that uh, quality or capacity within yourself, you will become more like a god or you will go through a, a process of deification, of becoming more godlike. Or in, in Setian terms, uh, they like to use the term kefir to describe this process. And so then the other thing is antinomianism. And as we'll see, antinomianism is kind of in a different it's kind of in a different class or category than self-deification. And one reason is because self-deification, that's kind of a principle. The idea that you have the capacity of, of divinity within you already, that's sort of a principle. That's something that you believe about yourself and about humanity. I have that essence within me. I have that possibility within me. And, and I always will. It's something humanity has. It's something people have, you know, normally for the most part. Now, antinomianism basically means um, it's, it's, it, the, the, the words mean, the phonemes within it mean anti, meaning, you know, against. And then nom has to do with name and the naming. And it's like taking the name of, of, of against. And it's, it's, it's very much in line with the idea of the, the rebel. You know, Satan is the rebel or the accuser. Um, it's, it's, it's the anti-scene. This is the way of the rebel. This is the way of the underground. It's the way of the goths and the punks. It, it, it's the way of the nonconformist. It's the way of, I'm not going to follow the herd. I'm going to follow my own way. So the, the reason this is in a different category is because it is always, to some extent, kind of arbitrary. In other words, the form that antinomianism takes at any given time is kind of dependent on what the mainstream is. You know, uh, you, you can't be an antinomian. You can't be a rebel without rebelling against something. So what are you rebelling against? Now, from the satanic perspective, it's easy enough to say that I'm rebelling against Christianity. That's the, 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 the simplest way of, of approaching the concept of it. But what if you take away Christianity? If you take away Christianity and you didn't have anything to rebel against, how would that change the face of Satanism? It's probably a bigger question. Simpler way of looking at it is 
you know, in the in the 90s, back in the day, I used to I used to wear black, and that was pretty radical back then. You know how hard it was. I I don't think you could even get black jeans until like I don't know 1987, 88. At least I couldn't where I lived in um, Nowheresville, Lincoln, Nebraska. But you know, in the nineties, you know, you started having, you know, I I could find some black clothes and stuff like that. So I started wearing black clothes, and that was pretty antinomian. But nowadays, I show up in you know San Francisco or or New York City wearing all black. I, that's not antinomian. I'm, I'm gonna fit right in with the crowd. So the antinomianist aspect of wearing black changed. Give you another example. Black Craft Cult. Man, when I discovered Black Craft Cult, I was going out, I was getting all those shirts and hoodies with like the devil and make your own future and a pentagram on it and the Baphomet and all that stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is so awesome. I so wish there had been something like this when I was, um, when I was in my 20s. I'd be wearing this stuff all the time. Anyhow, I got a lot of that stuff, you know, and I wear it around, wear it around on the weekends. And a couple of weeks ago, I was out at Sam's Club with my wife. Yeah, we go to Sam's Club. What about it? That's a real fucking antinomian, and I know. So anyhow, it's Sam's Club, and I see a uh, family there, uh, Mexicans, a little Mexican kid. Fat little Mexican kid. He's probably like, you know, 10, 10 years old. And he's wearing a jacket. There's nothing else about him that looks particularly antinomian. But he's wearing a, a silk jacket. I look a little closer and, and the jacket, what does it say on it? It says, create your own future. I'm like, oh my God, he's wearing black craft. And that was it for me. I went home and I took all the black craft shirts out of my dresser and I moved them down into the second dresser, which is like off day working in the yard shirts. I can't wear black craft in public anymore. Sorry. That is just a great example, though, of how antinomianism can change overnight based upon society and your perception of society. So, while antinomianism might be a gateway, because a lot of people discover the self-deification part of the left-hand path, second, and antinomianism is how they discover it initially. You know, their previous uh, religions that they've grown up with have failed them have proven themselves to be a farce and full of lies and coercion and nonsense. And so, they're see, they're, they're, they, so they see the um, other people who are like wearing black, right? It's like the anti-scene um, anti to conventional religion is, is the Satanists and the, and the pagans and the Setians and all of that. And so often people like find their way into into left-hand path initially just through antinomianism. Now, once they're there, 
socially, then maybe they will discover some of these other things, but not necessarily. So some people can, you know, antinomianism is enough for them. But antinomianism doesn't really take you beyond the social aspect of it. So, so let's go back to self-deification and let's unpack that. It actually breaks out into four unique components or ideas or values that may constitute a left-hand path. So uh, the, the definitions from flowers, so self-deification is defined as the attainment of an enlightened or awakened independently existing intellect and its relative immortality. Now he puts in the term relative immortality in there for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one thing, do you define immortality as just a clear-cut life forever, or does it mean immortal to live a long time? Does it mean to live longer in the flesh? Does it mean, you know, there's different ways of taking it? And the other thing, the other reason that uh, relativity is mentioned in here is because um, and, and we'll see this later when we talk about some of the other components is self-deification does not mean that you are a God just bam as you are necessarily what it means is that you have the potential for Godhood within you but you might need to do some other things in order to unlock that or engage that process or see that um, that potential grow so Let's talk about the, the next one. Number two is individualism. And he defines this as the enlightened intellect is that of a given individual, not a collective body. So this one's pretty simple. This is individualism versus collectivism. Individualism is a central concept for a left-hand path pursuit for a left-hand path system. And this can be confusing because of what is meant by a collective body. And the sense in which this is meant is the sense of collectivism in which uh, the adherence to a norm is coerced or forced or or required or there's an aspect of, of obedience in it in other words there's like a power system involved it doesn't mean um, groups organizations tribes that are voluntarily entered into okay so if you work at McDonald's that doesn't mean that you are you have to sacrifice your individuality to the collective body of McDonald's to the McDonald's collective what it means is that you're voluntarily investing your time and labor with this organization in exchange for the uh, value uh, that you receive in turn for that so it's very important to understand that when when we say individualism it doesn't mean that you have no friends 
But you live in your basement. You don't talk to anyone. You don't accept ideas from anyone else. You make up all of your ideas on your own, and you have no interactions with anyone, and you somehow just magically create money to, to pay the rent. That's not what individualism means. It means, again, that your the enlightened intellect is that of a given individual. What this means is that intelligence or consciousness is something that is attached to an individual. And if you say there's a collective consciousness or a collective unconsciousness, this effectively ends the concept of consciousness. So individualism is a precondition and consciousness in some sense emerges from that. This is very similar to um, Aristotle's approach to the idea of the forms. So, uh, Plato had his idea of the forms, and with Plato, the idea is more that the forms um, emerge, well, basically, reality has emerged from the forms, right? So all the reality that we experience right now is a shitty kind of reality, and the forms are above and beyond it. So we need to work our way out of this reality, and that's Plato's cave, to get to the forms, which are the pure ideas, the pure forms of existence. And Aristotle recognized forms, but he kind of went the other direction, and he said a form exists because of the individual expression of it. Um, so it's the individual expressions which constitute and, and give us knowledge of, of the forms. So if you take, like, you know, the color red as an example of a, of a form, you know, Plato would say, he would say, well, if you close your eyes and you imagine the color red, you can still see it. And so that's proof that red exists uh, independent of particularizations of it. But then uh, the Aristotelian response to that would be that, well, maybe that's just your memory of seeing things that are red and that really I only know for sure what red is because, you know, I pick up my red notebook here and I see red on it and that's the color red. So it's the notebook which came into being with the color red on it. Uh, if you could see me here, you'd see me holding up a, my little t uh, three ring binder notebook. Um, the, the individual expression of it, individual instance of it, is what gives meaning and significance to the form of red. And so it's the same thing with consciousness. It is the individual expression of it, an individual conscious entity, a person, which gives significance to the idea of consciousness. So that's individualism. The third value he refers to is initiation and he defines this as the enlightenment and strength of essence necessary for the desired state of evolution of self are attained by means of stages created by the will of the magician not because he or she was divine to begin with okay so this goes back to the self this is this is a clarification on that idea of self-deification are not born as just a god. You don't come into this world as just a pure, ultimate god. You come into this world with the potential for that, and then you need to work and go through a series of stages and self-improvement, which is fired by your individual will. So this is an important distinction for how the term initiation is used on the left-hand path because 
the term initiation i mean if you went to if you went to college and you got initiated into a into a uh, uh, fraternity that's a different kind of initiation now if you joined like the the cub scouts and got initiated into weebelows different kind of initiations um you know masonic and other things um i can't really speak to those because i haven't uh, had direct experience of it but a lot of times what a not left-hand path organization when they talk about initiation they mean someone else is doing it to you someone is going to initiate you but on the left-hand path we look at initiation as a self-motivated process in accordance with an individual's will so initiation is something you do to yourself initiation is something you enact yourself and and you uh and and you follow through on your own so that's number three another aspect that can make something look like a left-hand path and number four is magic and he says, practitioners of the left-hand path see themselves as using their own wills in a rationally intuited system or spiritual technology designed to cause the universe around them to conform to their self-willed patterns. I think that's a great left-hand path definition of magic. And it's in line with uh, Crowley's definition in Magic and Theory and Practice, where he says it's the art and science of causing will uh, causing change to occur in accordance with one's will. Magic is an extension of will, and will is an extension of individual individualism and self-deification, these other aspects of the left-hand path. They're all connected with each other. So outside of the left-hand path, people will use magic in a different sense. So course you have stage magic pulling a rabbit out of out of a hat um it's not necessarily uh, you know uh, a self-willed change to the real universe and often you people use the term magic just to refer to anything uh miraculous or difficult to explain or coincidental sometimes extreme synchronicities uh, might be considered magic but the way magic is used from a left-hand path perspective and this is as that is the reason why some people look at, at Crowley one reason why some people look at Crowley and says say that he was kind of left-hand path or that he tapped into uh, left-hand path it's because of this concept of magic and most importantly that magic is basically another way of saying will or another way of highlighting the significance of will and will again and again, will is a result of individualism. It doesn't make any sense to talk about will when you're talking about a organization or a collective, the collective will. Um, will really refers to something that individuals have. So all of these components, aspects, values uh, come into play 
throughout the rest of uh, Flower's book, Lords of the Left Hand Path, as he goes through and, and we try to say whether certain, you know, systems from the past or certain historical movements could be considered a, a left hand path or not. So then you come back to antinomianism and 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 you can see so antinomianism can be a thing by itself that is really separate from any of these sorts of things. So, you know, punk rock was pretty antinomianism pretty antinomian uh when i was a kid anyhow in the 80s but there was no concept of self-deification um maybe there was a little bit of individualism in it at one point but a lot of that got evaporated out of it um by the so-called peace punks and then there certainly wasn't any initiation um, in, in, in the sense of enlightenment or strength of essence or a state of personal evolution. And there certainly was no magic. So in the end, I would say punk rock was not a left-hand path. Okay, uh, But it was antinomian for its time. Now, if antinomianism starts to bring in some of these qualities... Uh, then perhaps it could be considered a left-hand path. So you could take something like uh, Satan atheism, the idea that you can be a Satanist and be an atheist. And, well, is that left-hand path? It's certainly antinomianism. Um, now, some Satan atheists are very much into the idea of individualism. Um, some are not. Some, some place uh, obligation to the collective as a higher value than individualism. So you could question it based on that. Many uh, Satan atheists don't appear to accept initiation as being a thing. The idea that um, you can go through a state of personal evolution through a, uh, a series of, of stages created by your own self-will that have a change, that have a strengthening effect on, on the psyche. A lot of Satan atheists don't seem uh, to accept that. Now, a lot of Satan atheism does accept magic. I see more of that, that the idea that you can use your will to, to create uh, change in the universe, that, that is often a thing. So, so maybe that could be a left-hand path. Ultimately, I mean, for me, one thing that I look at is just the idea that it's a path. And that really ties into the initiation aspect of it. The idea is that you're going somewhere. So if I just want to take on a, you know, a uh, belief system because of the trappings and because it makes me feel better about myself, makes me feel better about being an individual, or feel better about myself for having a uh, self-deification aspect, um, I would still argue that that is not really a path because it doesn't have the movement. And that's just something that's implicit in the, in the word left-hand path. 
the title, the, the name left-hand path, is that there's a path in it. So that means that you're going somewhere. I mean, what do you need a path for if you're not going to go anywhere, if you're not moving anywhere? So there's this idea of movement and change and dynamism within it. And I think that that's a really critical aspect of it, of it also. Now here's something else like really interesting about this. I gotta I gotta put a uh, a postscript on here about Zoroastrianism. Can Zoroastrianism be considered a left hand path? And in the past, there's certainly was some controversy about this, and it's controversial even in the big picture of things outside of this little little world that we're kind of examining here. Um, you know, in the mainstream, Zoroastrianism is often taken, in the past has often been taken as being sort of the progenitor of the right-hand path, the first model for the right-hand path because they had the first uh, monotheism and it's the first... Uh, a conception of heaven and hell and all these basic things that went into these other monotheistic systems. And one of the great things that uh, Dr. Flowers has subsequently done is really um, highlight a lot of the details in that system, which really have been overlooked by, by many um, writers and thinkers and anthropologists over the years. And if you go back and look at some of the key components in Zoroastrianism, it really starts to look pretty left-hand path. And really, there's two aspects of Zoroastrianism that you can focus on in order to get this, this perspective on it. And those are the nature of Ahura Mazda and the nature of the Favashi. So that's basically the nature of the principle of consciousness and the principle of the soul, the which is wrapped up with the, the concept of the individual. So the nature of Ahura Mazda is basically consciousness, pure, focused consciousness like a principle of isolate intelligence. And that principle is what is found in all human beings. Okay, so that right there constitutes um, the self-deification aspect that justifies individualism. And, and furthermore, regarding the nature of the Fravashi, the cosmology of Zoroastrianism suggests that every individual begins life as a pre-soul in, in the realm, in a, in a sort of a, a pre-earth kind of realm, and that every individual who, every soul that comes to earth makes a decision to do that. They choose to do it. They make a personal decision to come to earth to fight against 
evil, which means non-consciousness, which means ignorance, which means mechanicalism, which means coercion, which means the sublimation of will, the extinguishing of free will, the extinguishing of magic. They're fighting against that. That's why individuals come here. But then when we come here, um, we go through a process of like forgetting about a lot of that. And so a lot of work here on, on Earth is... is has to do with kind of remembering our purpose, remembering um, about will. And this is where we start to go through a process of initiation. We go through a series of stages created by our will and our desire to um, see truth and to perfect truth and to uh, pervade truth and, and, and joy and, and stuff into the world while we're here. So the concept of initiation comes into play there. This is also um, illustrated with the concept of good thoughts, good words, good deeds. This is the idea that you, um, by having a good thought, having and, 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 and good here means strong, powerful, ethical, um, and things like that, not just self-sacrifice, because that's how people use the word good a lot nowadays in the sense of self-sacrifice. You know, he's a good boy. But um, the way this mantra works, it's like strong, um, substantial thoughts lead to good, strong, substantial words spoken in the real world, which then lead to further good thought, uh, good um, actions, deeds good substantial deeds in the real world and that is magic my friends causing change to occur in the universe in accordance with will and magic begins with the right kind of thinking proceeds with the right kind of words and is finalized with the right kind of action so really all the components of the left-hand path, of the self-deification aspect of the left-hand path, are incorporated in Zoroastrianism. The only thing missing is antinomianism. There's not really anything antinomian about Zoroastrianism. They wear white. <laughs> The priests, uh, Zoroastrian priests, like to wear white. So, for antinomians living today, the irony is that it's hardest for them to see the this system um, as being left-hand path, even though it is probably more consistent than any other ancient system. If anything, you could easily make the case that this is the original left-hand path, although it's not. It was never called that because it wasn't in contrast to anything. The thing that um, you know, Zarathustra was against, was arguing against, was basically the uh, idol worship, idol worship of uh, of, of paganism um, that was around at the time. And, and I'm talking about tribal totemistic paganism. I'm not talking about um, the kind of paganism that, that you see down at the um, New Age bookstore nowadays. Uh, different kind of tribalism, which also demanded lots and lots of uh, sacrifice. And one of the earliest things that, that uh, Zarathustra is known for uh, decrying was 
the massive um, animal sacrifice that was taking place to, you know, gods like, you know, Moloch and 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 stuff like that, you know, like you know Babylonian deities and 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 things like that. Um, and, and so he was basically saying that, you know, there's a, there's a principle above all this, and it's the principle of consciousness, the principle of self-awareness. That's what Ahura Mazda is. There's a principle of consciousness that's really kind of uh, above and beyond all these uh, small gods, and that if we connect with what's highest, with, with that highest principle, then at the same time, we connect with what is highest within ourselves, and that's how that's a secret to unlocking self-deification is that you connect with what's highest in the in the outside world, and that helps you connect with what is um, with the highest within yourself. Because we like to think with black magic, we connect with ourselves, and then the world changes afterwards. But sometimes you have to make these changes of focus in the outside world in order to get your inner world focusing in the in the right manner. This is the same reason why you'd practice meditation or a sitting. And incidentally, uh, Zarathustra was uh, probably one of the first uh, teachers to suggest silent meditation, silent reflection as being the most important practice. This, of course, was a practice that's carried on uh, by Gurdjieff and talked about in his book, Beelzebub's Tales, to his grandson. But the same thing is going on here. The reason you get into meditation or sitting is because of a, a, a strong wish or need to order one's internal universe. Because you look inside your internal world even for a moment, you see what a mess it is, what a chaotic mess it is in there. And so, you know, you can think about, let's think about ordering our internal universe. I'm sure lots of people listening to this have tried this. You just think about it. I want to order my internal universe, and you think about it really hard, and you sit there and think about it. Next thing you know, you're daydreaming. You're thinking about something else. Next thing you know, you're out doing all the same things you used to do, and you're like, Jesus, how do I actually affect a real change? And so something like meditation or a, or a, a you know silent meditation or sitting gets to the heart of this, that you physically force yourself to do something you know sit still force yourself to sit still and don't do anything for like 10 minutes and maybe 15 minutes and gradually and slowly the internal universe starts to kind of change another great practice with this is learning to uh um you know clean your house clean your room make your bed Basic things like that. You set set ideas, set physical tasks for ordering your universe, and this helps you begin to order your internal universe in in a new kind of way. So it's a similar thing going on here, is that you look to the principle of this outside of you, and that will help you look to the principle inside of yourself and make that connection internally. So maybe that helps give you an idea of what I mean when I say that this podcast is is fighting for the left-hand path or is aligned with the left-hand path. That's the left-hand path that I am familiar with. 
And I think many other people are too. And pretty much, I think everyone I've had on this show has has fit into these categories in, in some way or another. And it, at some point embraces these values uh, within their pursuits. And occasionally we run the, the extremes of antinomianism. And, you know, that's just how it is. I'm an antinomian at heart. I love black metal. I love industrial. I was a punk. I was a goth. I was all those things. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I've been them all. I've been to dark places. So maybe antinomianism gives you a, a sense of you know, who you can have a beer with, who you can rock out to. But then individualism. Self-deification, initiation, magic gives you an idea of someone who maybe you can have a deeper level of conversation with. That maybe you can make a connection that will result in a nourishing experience for that idea of, of moving through self-created stages. And in this manner, may you keep the left-hand path unfolding and keep the dark fires burning.